following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So, we are in this series in uh, 2 Corinthians. And in fact, we're wrapping up the series today. And so we come to this final passage, and we've been in this book for a good chunk of the year, haven't we? Quite a few months. I hope it's been a helpful series for you. Uh, I hope that it's uh, enriched you. I hope that in some ways it's, it's given you a greater appreciation for the life of the Apostle Paul. That was a huge part of my motivation in doing this series, was to draw us into the journey of this guy called Paul who wrote this letter, because Second Corinthians gives us really one of the clearest glimpses of the life of Paul. And all the struggles that he went through, his ups and downs and the agony of his ministry and the turbulent relationships that he has with this church in Corinth. Uh, A lot of the letters of Paul, you're getting a lot of wonderful theology. But in 2 Corinthians, you're really seeing Paul, the man. Uh, The man is the message in 2 Corinthians. So I hope it's given you an appreciation for the incredible sacrifice that he has made for the work of the gospel. And we all owe Paul a debt of gratitude for that. Uh, But more than that, I hope that it's drawn you to Jesus that it's drawn you closer to the God whom Paul loved and worshipped. And uh, I think if there's one theme that's come out of 2 Corinthians for me, it's that idea of strength and weakness. just keeps coming back to that time and time again. Uh, And I hope that that's not just something that's been a sermon or two in the series, but something that God keeps working on your heart, uh, keeps reminding you that he is strong in your weaknesses, that his grace is sufficient for you, for all of us, and that that becomes a theme of your life. So I've enjoyed preaching this book, and uh, we've worked through almost 13 chapters now, and so today's the final one, and we get to this chapter that Wes has just read, and it's, it's a little bit of a licorice all sorts kind of passage. There's just various different things in here, and Paul often does this. He gets to the end of a letter, and he will just touch on a whole range of different things in the final chapter. And sometimes he'll do greetings to a whole lot of people and he'll cover a whole lot of topics that he hasn't quite got to so far in the book. And that's kind of what he does here. There's a lot of different ground that he covers. But if you have followed the book so far, especially if you've read through this book of the Bible, you may notice that 2 Corinthians generally follows a kind of a past, present, future kind of flow. I don't know whether you've picked that up. But Paul begins the letter, first couple of chapters, he's looking back. He's looking back to his previous visit to Corinth, uh, which he calls his painful visit. Uh, It was a very hard time. He was personally attacked by a member of the church, uh, and he's he's reflecting on that, and he's talking about what's happened to him since then. And then around the middle of the book, he's talking in the present. He's talking to the church about the church's present struggles and trials and his relationship with them and taking up this offering for the church in Jerusalem and all of these things. And now as he gets to the end of the book, he's looking towards the future. And in this final chapter particularly, he's looking forward and he's looking towards his next visit to Corinth. So he's talking here, you might have heard it, about him making a third visit to Corinth. He's going to send this letter off to the church in advance of a third visit that he's going to make personally to come and see the church. His first visit was when he planted the church. His second visit was the painful visit. And now his third visit will be a follow-up visit that he's going to make. So he's going to send the letter off with Titus, and then he is eventually going to follow that up with a visit himself. But he anticipates in this passage that it's going to be another difficult visit. This is not going to be happy times, probably. It's not going to be a friendly reunion. This is going to be difficult. 
for a couple of reasons. One is that Paul's still got this issue of the super apostles to deal with, this group within the church that are just fixated on these false apostles running off after their teaching, and Paul's going to come and try and bang some heads together about that. And then he's also got people that are just involved in destructive patterns of behavior, things that they have not sorted out, destructive patterns of living and speaking and acting, and he's going to have to come and deal with that too. So there's going to be some hard conversations coming in Corinth when he gets there. In fact, he says at the beginning of chapter 13, this will be my third visit to you, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he's using this kind of courtroom image to describe what it's going to be like, the sort of legal terminology. He's saying, when I get there, you've, you've kind of put me on trial, so I'm going to take the stand. I'm going to give a defense of myself, my apostleship, my credentials, uh, but I'm also going to put you on the stand. You're going to have to be ready to give a defense. I'm going to cross-examine you, and you'd better be ready to give some answers for the way that you guys have been acting because it hasn't been good. So Paul is setting this up to be a pretty serious kind of visit. But before he gets there, he wants the church to do something. And this is where we're going to focus today. He wants the church to do something before he arrives. And he spells it out in verse 5 of chapter 13. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That word examine is a legal word. So Paul's carrying on this legal metaphor. He's saying, I want you to cross-examine yourselves. He's saying, when I come to Corinth, it's going to be like a court trial. There's going to be difficulties. You're going to have to take the stand. I'm going to cross-examine you. But before I get there, I want you to cross-examine yourselves. I want you to put yourselves on the stand. I want you to ask some difficult questions, some searching questions, some probing questions of your own lives so that maybe that might surface some things, so that maybe you might recognize some things, so that maybe you might change your ways, and then maybe this next visit is going to go a whole lot easier. Paul wants them to do the work of spiritual self-examination. And that is not just something for the Corinthian church. That is something that every follower of Jesus and every generation is called to do. The work of spiritual self-examination. Where we search our hearts and we cross-examine our lives, or maybe more accurately, we open ourselves up to allowing God to search our lives. And we put ourselves in this place where we allow God to really shine the spotlight of His Spirit into the dark cracks and crevices of our lives, not just the places that we're already kind of comfortable relating to God from, but the places that we would rather keep hidden, allowing God to examine those places and spaces in our lives to surface what He wants to surface so that we can grow. This is one of the most vital practices in our Christian lives, one of the most vital practices for our growth as Christians, spiritual self-examination. And it's not a pathway just down to self-pity. It's always constructive. It's always for the purpose of being built up. Paul says it a couple of times in this passage. My purpose is to strengthen you. My purpose is to build you up and not tear you down. The purpose of spiritual self-examination is so that God will raise things in your life so that we can move forward. Not so we can wallow in self-pity, not so that we can go into self-condemnation and feel guilty, but so that we can press forward and be built up and move onwards into spiritual maturity. That's the point. So I want to just touch on today, it's appropriate we do this at the end of the series. We're looking back. I mean, we've covered 13 chapters of the Bible in the past few months. Rather than just kind of move on from here and leave it all behind, it's appropriate that we take a little bit of time just to think about what has God been saying? What might God be wanting to do? 
What does he want to bring to our minds? So I, I, my hope is that this sermon can be not, so, not just information coming at you, but a time when we actually practice self-examination and we actually open our lives up and allow God to speak and allow him to stir us and allow him to maybe put his finger on something and prompt us with something and nudge us in some way that he's wanting to work in our lives, that he's wanting to stir in our hearts. So I want to touch on three areas of spiritual self-examination. Three areas that Paul talks about in this chapter where he's wanting the Corinthians to examine themselves. And then at the end, I want to lead us through a simple practice of self-examination that you can make part of your daily routine. Okay, here we go. So the first dimension of examining ourselves is examining ourselves in relation to God. Simple enough. Just examining our lives in relation to God. Let me read verse 5 again. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Probably most of us in this room, I'm guessing, who would say that we are Christians, we would put a big tick next to that box. We'd say, yep, examine ourselves. I'm in the faith. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm good. Tick that box. Got it. Let's move on, right? We just, that one's, that one's easy. But I don't think Paul lets us off quite that easily. I think we need to just linger on this a little bit. Let me ask you this. What criteria do you use to determine whether you are in the faith? What criteria would you use? What criteria are you using now in your mind? If this is a question about am I a genuine Christian? Am I a genuine Christ follower? Am I in the faith? What criteria are you using? What we tend to do most of the time is in our minds, we go back in our lives, follow the timeline of our lives back to a point when you made a decision. And you think about a time when you asked Jesus into your heart, a time when you prayed a prayer and you, and you made Jesus your Lord and Savior, uh, you maybe put up your hand or you went forward at a service or you did something and, and, you, and you made this commitment to Jesus. And, and that may well, that may have been the moment of your conversion. That may have been the moment that you became a Christian. But I think this question is deeper than that because Paul's asking it in the present. And he's saying, do you recognize, can you recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Present tense. Do you recognize, can you see that Jesus Christ is living in you today? In other words, do you have a living faith? Do you honestly have a faith that is living, that is real, that is personal, that is active? Is Jesus living in you today? It's a simple question, but I wonder whether for some of you the answer is no. I wonder whether some of us are living off of faith that we had years ago. And you made a decision and you prayed the prayer and you made the commitment and you always go back to that, back to that day, back to that day. Yep, I, I said that, I did that, and so I'm good. But if you look in your heart today, would it be true to say that there is not much of a faith that's there? When you search your heart today, it's like, well, I don't really have much of a living. It's not really real for you anymore. It's just you're living off a, a faith from yesterday. You're living off a faith from, from years ago, but it's not real now. I think some people can also live off a borrowed faith from other people. This especially happens in marriages. Husbands, you may be living off the faith of your wife. Wives living off the faith of your husband. We do this because you sort of say, oh, well, you know, that my husband, my wife, they're kind of, they've got it more spiritually together than me. 
they are more spiritually mature than me. So, you know, we're kind of, we're one flesh anyway. We're one unit. So if they've kind of got 95% of the faith and I've just got 5% of the faith, that's okay because we're one. So I get the 95. Isn't that how it works? I kind of get it into my account. But you are living off the faith of your spouse. And, you can, and you're kind of being propped up. I think especially this happens to guys, if I'm honest. I think husbands, too many of us, we are being propped up by the faith of our wives. We're being propped up by their maturity in Christ, but we're not owning it for ourselves. It's not real enough for us. We don't necessarily have a living and vibrant faith. So I, I want to just ask you to cross-examine your own heart and ask, do you have a faith today that is real? Is the risen Jesus really alive in you? Do you have a faith that's vibrant and active? Is Jesus really the center of your life? And honestly, you might stumble at the first hurdle. This might be the biggest surprise of the morning. You look at that question and you actually, the answer is no. You fail the test. And if that's the case, okay. Okay, so start there. If honestly the answer is no and you're living off a borrowed faith or a yesterday faith or whatever it is, okay. Start there. Jesus is standing before you today with arms open saying, I'm ready to renew that faith in you. Don't, let, don't just push that aside and just wallow in self-pity about it, but embrace the life that Jesus offers you. Jesus is willing and ready to take your life and renew that faith you used to have. Fan into flame that faith you used to have. Renew your first love, as the Bible puts it, or renew a faith you never have had. But Jesus is so willing to come into your life, pour his spirit out again in your life and give you fresh faith. Give you fresh touch of his spirit in your life. Renew you and set you on your feet and walk with you through your life. God is willing to do this. And maybe for you, the first step is just honestly bringing your life before God and saying, God, there's really not much faith at all here. There's the dregs of something I don't know. It's carried over from years ago, but I want you to renew a living and vital faith in my life. And if you need to say that and pray that honestly and lean into that relationship with Jesus anew today, I want to encourage you to do that as a first step of self-examination. So we need to honestly examine where we are in relation to God. And the answer may not be as easy as you think. Second area of self-examination is in regard to ourselves, in regard to our own spiritual maturity. Let's look up at the end of chapter 12. In the last verse of chapter 12 says, Paul, verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. See, this is, all, this is really all just a carryover from 1 Corinthians. If you've read that book, that's where all of this stuff comes from. He hasn't really talked much about all of the sexual immorality and debauchery in this letter. That's what he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. There were all these people, or at least some people, stuck in all these really destructive relationships in 1 Corinthians. And Paul tries to sort that out. But he gets to the end of 2 Corinthians, and the fact that he brings all this up again means nothing has changed. There's still these people who haven't, done much about these patterns of living that they were stuck in. And so Paul has to call them out on it again. See, Paul is longing for this church to grow up. He's longing for these people to become more mature, and they're not doing it. They're just stuck. They're not moving forward. They're in the same old patterns. Paul has this wonderful vision of the church as the body of Christ, as the mature body of Christ. But here is a church that's just stuck in infancy. And refuses to grow up. God's desire for our church is that we grow up, is that we mature. 
that we press on in Christ, not that we remain spiritual infants. And that means each of us within this community taking responsibility for growing up in Christ, taking responsibility for our own spiritual growth, our own maturity, growing in loving God and loving others. And sadly, I think so many Christians just never really grow out of spiritual infancy. We get saved, we become a Christian, and we maybe grow a little bit. We have this burst of energy, but we just remain infants. One author talks about the perpetual childhood of the believer. We just remain infants in regard to the Word of God, infants in our thinking, infants in our relationship with God, infants in our love for other people and loving our neighbor and reaching out, just infants. We just perpetually need spiritual milk. We can never move on to the spiritual meat. That's not God's desire for us. He wants to call us on to maturity. And it's a work of grace. Don't think this isn't about leaving grace behind so we can go on to kind of works and performance and legalism. This is all a work of grace. God's grace saves you and then God's grace transforms your life. And if it doesn't, then you have to ask, have you really been apprehended by the grace of God? Because if you have, God's grace doesn't just pardon you and leave you as you are. It moves you forward. Paul says at one point, God's grace compels me. It moves, it gives you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Do you have that in your life? Do you have a hunger and a thirst? And it may be two steps forward and five backwards, but do you long for it? Do you long for that life? Moving forward towards life in Christ, life in the Spirit, life with God. Do you desire to grow? Can you see any evidence of growth? In your life, look at the last year, two years, three, four, five. Can you look? Can you see any evidence of spiritual growth? See, we want to be a come-as-you-are church. Come-as-you-are, bring your stuff. Don't pretend, just come-as-you-are. But we don't want to be a stay-as-you-are church. We want to be a moving-on church. Moving on to maturity in the grace of God by the strength of the Spirit, but moving on and encouraging each other on to spiritual maturity. Sometimes I think we just don't quite realize what God actually wants to do in our lives. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So we think that God wants to come and inhabit our lives just to make a few little cosmetic changes Just tweak this and tweak that. But God wants to run a season of the block in your life. God's into some serious remodeling in your life. He wants to knock a wall down. He wants to change the inclinations of your heart. He wants to rewire your life. He wants to open up new possibilities. Give you a heart for things and people that you never thought you might have a heart for. Change some unhealthy patterns and habits of acting and speaking and thinking. He wants to crucify the flesh. He wants, to, wants you to live into the life of the Spirit. This is God's intention in your life. And at times, it's going to be painful. We shouldn't be surprised. 
God may be trying to tear down a wall of your life at the moment, put a window in, let some light in. It's painful. It's hard. He might be pruning you at the moment, cutting away some things so that you start bearing some fruit in an area where you haven't been very fruitful. These things hurt, but the very fact that they hurt is a good sign that God's probably working on you, that God's at work and he's gardening and he's remodeling and he's making a palace. He doesn't just want to make us better cottages. He wants to make your life a palace. And so bring this down to a practical level in your life. What is that area that God may just be nudging you on and saying, this is where I want to focus now? In this next season of your life, this is the area. There's a room in your life. There's a locked room. And God's saying, that's the room. You've got all these other areas I know you're willing to work on and we're seeing some progress, but now there's this locked room and I want to come into that room now. And I want to start working on it, start tearing down some walls and start remodeling. Are you willing to submit to that? No matter how hard and no matter how painful and no matter what the cost, are you willing to submit to that? Just allow God to touch that nerve and reveal to you what room that might be. What's that area of your life? And he's saying, this is the next season for you. This is the area. I want to call you on in this area, not to tear you down, but to build you up so that you take hold of more of the life of Christ that God wants for you. What's that area of spiritual maturity that he's calling you into? And finally, Paul talks about spiritual maturity and self-examination in regard to one another. We need to examine ourselves in relation to God. We need to examine ourselves in relation to our own spiritual maturity. And then we need to examine ourselves in relation to each other. And I think Paul puts it so beautifully in the benediction to this book. As he finishes in verse 11, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. We should be a community of joy. You know that? That's going to be a whole different sermon, isn't it? Strive for full restoration. That's the idea of relationships within the church that might be crooked, that need to be made straight. Restoration. There might be someone in this church that you've got a problem with, someone that annoys you. There might be someone, even someone in the building right now, that when you see them coming on a Sunday morning, you take a pretty wide berth around them. That's the person to move towards now. Restoration means not avoiding that person. Restoration means not saying, I'm not going to put my carpet on the same trolley as that person over there. But moving towards that person in love. Even the person, who is the person in the church that you actually really find difficult? Why are you all looking at me? <laughs> who is that person? That's, that's the person to move towards now in love. Not avoid. Not talk to other people about. Not judge in your head but to move towards. Maybe that takes a text. Maybe it's going to take a coffee conversation. Maybe it's just going to take the process of forgiveness in your own heart, going through that before God. But who is that person? Let's be a community of restoration, making sure we make the crooked relationships straight. And then encourage one another. Man, it, it's amazing to me when I, just in catching up with different ones of you, just how starved we are of encouragement. You know, we, our culture is starved of encouragement. And it's amazing just a word, how far a word of encouragement can go. And I know that my need for encouragement is far greater than my willingness to give encouragement. And I want to see that change in my life. I've got a huge need for encouragement, but it's not matched by my willingness to give encouragement. So there's a deficit there that I need to pay attention to. What if we became a community of encouragement? 
really calling out the best in each other, really naming the best. Sometimes, I know, especially for guys, it's slightly awkward, but what if we said to one another, hey, you're just doing great in this area. Hey, you just, I just wanted to say, man, you're just doing so, I really appreciate your patience in that area. I really appreciate the way you're doing this. I, I just, I see this in you, really encourage you in this. What if we got used to speaking like that? We would build each other up in an amazing way. Doesn't all need to come from the leaders and the pastors and the elders. We need to become to one another a community of encouragement. Is there a word of encouragement that you can speak to someone? And then Paul says, be of one mind. And that's simply the idea of hanging together around the stuff that matters theologically, our unity in Christ. When we did that series earlier in the year on the Apostles' Creed, that's our one-mindedness. Those are the things that we are going to go to the wall for. Those are the things that we believe together. And then around that, there's all kinds of space to disagree and, and lovingly dialogue and, and learn from each other's perspectives and all that kind of stuff. But one-mindedness means holding together on the essential truths that matter. And I think we're growing in that area. And then Paul says, live in peace. And that's just a beautiful banner over the whole community, the banner of shalom. That as we work on our relationships and encourage one another and pursue one-mindedness, we are becoming a community of peace. We are becoming a community of shalom. So examine yourselves in regard to one another. How are we doing? How are your relationships with other people? Within the church particularly, but outside the church as well. Is there a relationship that needs to be restored, that needs some forgiveness, that needs a word, that needs some encouragement? Is there someone that you can encourage and build up and strengthen? Is there some way of pursuing one-mindedness with someone else with whom you might disagree? We don't know how Paul's words went down. We don't know whether the Corinthians ever took this to heart. This is the last piece of correspondence that we have between Paul and the Corinthians. That's it. We know that he made it to Corinth. Acts tells us that. He spent three months there. So he made it for the third visit. We don't know what that visit was like. We don't know whether his relationship with his church ever recovered or not. So we can really only answer these questions in regard to our own lives. Are we willing to do what Paul calls us to do? Are we willing to do what Scripture calls us to do? To live an examined life. To truly allow God to run a virus check over our entire lives in relation to him, in relation to ourselves, in relation to other people. And not just today. I know it's easy enough to do this today. But are you willing to make this a habit and a practice of your life? To take time regularly, draw aside, put yourself in a place, sit at the feet of Jesus, as it were, long enough for God really to run that inventory through your life and really allow him in your heart access to some of the deep corners and the deep cracks and crevices, and just be patient with that and let him surface what he wants to surface. It's not comfortable, because it means praying the difficult prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139, test me, O God, search my heart, examine me, see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And the risk, of course, is that God might actually reveal something to you, something that needs to change. And then that's something not just to put aside and ignore and get up and go on with the rest of our day, but to lean into that and say, God, I confess that to you. I want to grow in this area. I want to take hold of the life that you have for me. And I ask for the power and the fresh grace of your spirit to move forward in this area. Are you willing to establish this as a practice in your life, a regular practice of examining yourself spiritually before God in regard to yourself 
in regard to others so that we can grow together as a community into a mature body of Christ. As we finish, I want to lead us through a simple practice. And this is a practice that you can make part of your day. This could be a daily practice, could be a weekly practice, a really simple practice. It's called the prayer of examine. Uh, examine spelled E-N at the end, this kind of old English spelling of it. It was uh, developed by a guy called Ignatius in the 16th century. And just a very simple way of reviewing our lives, allowing God to review our lives. And it simply involves just stilling ourselves, being quiet, centering our minds on God, and then in our minds, going backwards over the last 24 hours of our day. And we just think about all the things that we've done and said and experienced in the last 24 hours. And at each point, we become aware of several things in the way God's working in our lives. We become aware of the ways that God seemed particularly present to us. And we really felt or experienced his presence. We become aware of the ways in which God seemed absent to us, seemed distant or we were disconnected from him. We become aware of the ways that we've got things to thank God for. So often we just miss the blessings of God in the course of our day, but we pay attention to the ways that God has given us gifts that we can celebrate and we can thank him for. And then we pay attention to the things we may need to confess, things that are not as they should have been. And we bring those honestly before God. We receive his fresh grace and forgiveness. And we ask for his strength in making change in those areas in the next day of our lives. It's a simple practice. You could do this every day. Just build this into your life. Great, great way to do it is just before you go to bed, just reviewing in reverse order the various events of your day in a prayerful spirit and just asking God to make you aware. This is just noticing the footprints of God in our lives so that we can face the next day in God's strength. And so we're going to do this together just for a couple of minutes. I'll guide us through it, just this little journey back through the past 24 hours of our lives. Let's just have an open heart, an open spirit. Let's allow God to put on our hearts whatever he wants to put on our heart. And let's then have the courage to respond if he wants to really put his finger on something and call us to grow in a particular area. So let's just quieten our hearts and allow God to speak to us. So we start by thinking about this morning. And we think about the way that we've already started the day, what we've done so far, how we've interacted with other people. We think about the ways that God has been present or the ways that God has seemed absent. We think about the things that we've got to be grateful for in this day so far. And we think about things that we might need to confess and bring before God. And then we let our minds wander back to last night, the things that we got up to, how we spent our time, ways that God seemed present in our evenings, ways that God seemed absent. Things to celebrate. Don't just think about the rugby things to confess and we go back further through the afternoon yesterday the things that we spent time doing how did you fill that afternoon space what were the ways that God was present and working that maybe at the time you didn't notice how did God seem absent maybe you were disconnected from him 
things to be grateful for in your afternoon yesterday? Things to confess. And then we go back to yesterday morning. How did you start the day yesterday? What was your Saturday morning like? How was God present in the midst of everything that was going on? How did he seem absent? What do you have to thank him for yesterday morning? What do you have to confess? So God, we gather up this past day of our lives and we offer it to you. We will never live that day again. Yesterday is gone. But we thank you, God, that your mercies are new every single morning. That you are here and your grace is here. And so whatever those past 24 hours have been like, God, we know that you are just inviting us to travel into the next 24 hours with you in step with your spirit. So we do that now, God. We confess to you the things that we need to confess. We ask that by your spirit you would help us to grow, to focus on those areas, to take some steps. We pray that you'd bring us freedom, Lord, from the things that just keep entangling us every day, the patterns of selfishness in our lives, the idolatries in our lives. We pray that you would free us from those that we would set our eyes on Jesus and run the race that is set before us. We thank you that you are always present with us. But in this next day, Lord, and every day of our lives, help us to be aware of your presence. Help us to lean into your presence. Help us to draw on the strength of your spirit to hunger and to thirst for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that we've been made holy. And now, Lord, we want to pursue lives of holiness. We want to be a community of holiness. Help us to live examined lives. Lord, help us to be courageous enough, to be humble enough, to allow you to shine the spotlight of your spirit into our lives. To put your finger on what you want to put your finger on so that you would call us forward into all that you have for us. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would lead us on by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.